Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, David O'Brien from City University, London. On this episode, we're talking to Professor Carl Spracklin from Leeds Metropolitan University in the UK about his new book, Whiteness and Leisure. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. Um, this episode, I'm talking to Carl Spracklin from Leeds Metropolitan University about his new book, Whiteness and Leisure, um, which is part of a, a new um, book series published by Palgrave Macmillan called Leisure Studies in a Global Era. And we're going to talk a bit um, about the book. But to begin with, it'd be really great if you could introduce yourself to uh, the listeners to the podcast, just by giving a bit of background on your um, academic work, and particularly your work in, um, in Leisure Studies. Okay, well, my name is Carl Spracklin. I'm a professor of leisure studies at Leeds Metropolitan University, um, which will probably be Leeds Beckett University by the time this podcast goes out. Um, I've been there for about 10 years now, um, uh, researching leisure in all its um, glory from um, professional sports all the way through to... um, music subcultures, tourism, um, and popular culture. And I've always been interested in uh, critical sociology um, and kind of Marxist, post-Marxist theory, looking at the ways in which um, leisure is both um, a space for realisation, exploration, and um, the construction of identity and community, but it's also... Um, increasingly um, a leisure space that is controlled by corporations, controlled by um, hegemonic interests um, and um, where um, people's agency um, is actually very um, controlled and limited. Yeah, and, and this comes through um, in, you know, almost kind of exactly in the book actually, which uh, covers, I guess, the full range of the areas of leisure that you've been interested in. Um, from things like sport, um, music, through to sort of everyday life. And obviously those kind of critical uh, sociological theories that you mentioned. But before we actually start talking about the book, it'd be really interesting if you could say a little bit about uh, the book series that's part of um, this uh, Leisure Studies in the Global Era that you're co-editing with Karen Fox from the University of Alberta. Yeah, the book series... uh like like all book series is no doubt um, the idea actually came from um, an editor at Palgrave Macmillan um, Philippa Grand um, who suggested um, that that we put a proposal together for um, a leisure study series al- alongside um, a series that already existed on um, sport in a global era she was keen to kind of um, push leisure studies because she felt uh, it was a kind of a niche that Palgrave hadn't really kind of explored um, but it was something that that, um, she felt they should be exploring 
I argue to her and to Palgrave that leisure studies should be reaching out to cultural studies, out to um, sociology, out to regional studies, all those other kind of areas um, where leisure studies had perhaps been kind of um, diminished and um, had kind of been marginalised or, or people thought leisure studies wasn't actually a mysterious um, part of their subject field. So I've always been trying to kind of push leisure studies into um, those other subjects and um, fields. Um, and I think with this, with, with leisure studies in a global era, it's about saying the old leisure studies is dead and there's a kind of a new leisure studies, a kind of a critical leisure studies um, that isn't in, just interested in um, running a leisure centre or figuring out um, the best way to put on some community sports activity, but actually it's asking these big questions about popular culture and capitalism and globalisation. And the book uh, really does do exactly that, actually, both in terms of its kind of theoretical um, approach and then also kind of um, getting into those big questions as applied to uh, different forms of leisure activity. I, I guess the interesting place to start with the book is that um, in the introduction, you described that it's about how whiteness is kind of uh, a constructed um, idea about how it's challenged, how it's redefined um, in various different ways. Uh, and I suppose the thing that, that's really, you know, the kind of the obvious first question is, so what is whiteness? Well, whiteness, um, um, it's, it's continually constructed um, in discourses in um, contestations over um, boundaries in the cons- uh, the development uh, of imagined community and symbolic community um, and in the kind of the struggle over who gets to um, who gets to decide who belongs and who doesn't whiteness becomes a kind of a metaphor for all the um, all the trappings of power that that are kind of carried by um, the same kind of elite group that has been around and controlling um, the kind of the global networks since um, the 19th century. So essentially we're looking at the global north, we're looking at um, what in the book uh, I call um, the kind of the western hegemons, the kind of the, the imperialist and post-imperialist um, American and British um political um, communities that still control the world, that still have huge influence in popular culture and culture more generally. I mean, it's really interesting that you attempt to link, I guess, what we think of as kind of everyday um, experiences of cultural consumption and then these broader theoretical questions around um, how ideas of race or um, ethnicity are kind of actively constructed by the activities it, um, of both people and corporations. It kind of comes through. Um, I don't mention this in the book, but when I was younger, I was um, I was I, I still enjoy watching the program Red Dwarf, and and it struck me at the time um, when I was when I was a child that that this comedy program Red Dwarf was doing something really kind of unusual. Because it had, um, for those who don't know, Red Dwarf had um, two black actors, um, and the lead character 
lead comic character was black. Um, one of the um, supporting characters uh, was black. And this is quite unusual at the time. Yeah, and this it, is sort of the late 80s, mid 90s. Yeah, this is kind of the late 80s, early, early 90s. Uh, and when I read the kind of interviews with, with the um, writers, and the developers, and they said, you know, they made this deliberate attempt to kind of fight this stereotype. It kind of made me realise, even back then, when I was a teenager, that 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 popular culture is a way of kind of reaffirming racial um, supremacy, racial hierarchies, um, and it's a way of making some way of making both whiteness normal, but then invisible. So it's always a white actor um, who's the main actor. In a film or in a uh, in a television program, the kind of the assumptions about history um, are all based on um, white history, and where where non-white um, discourses and non-white identities um, are at work, they become exotic and they become othered. And I and I took this interesting um, the construction of race into uh, my PhD and my work on rugby league, and uh, that then took me into um, looking at racism in rugby league, and rugby league being a northern working-class sport dominated by um, working-class white men, and how it was used to kind of construct um, their identity um, at the expense of um, any other alternative identity. And this, I guess, is grounded in uh, the first of the two major theoretical um, um, ideas or bodies of literature that you're drawing on, which is critical race theory. I wonder if you could say a bit about sort of what that is and, and why it matters in thinking about whiteness. Well, I think critical race theory um, deconstructs um, deconstructs kind of um, white privilege and the privilege of white academics um, to. Uh, be unreflective and uncritical about um, their own position in um, performing whiteness and um, supporting this racial hierarchy. So I'm keenly aware as an academic to kind of step back and and point out to leisure studies, point out to cultural studies and sociology uh, that often we kind of uh, avoid this it's the elephant in the room. You know, whiteness is is so so ingrained in everything that we do that that no one really wants to kind of talk much about it. It's the same way, um, the same way that radical feminists um, would um, critique the gender order, and I see critical race theory as using the same kind of um, tools and methods. So it's so it's partly partly kind of ethical, partly methodological and partly um, theoretical about what you say about race. So race race does not exist. Race is not a biological construct because it's not anything essential. All that it is is um, a, a myth, a narrative that, that holds power. And, it, and it's how what we do as academics to help kind of expose this um, that I think is um, the important message of the book. It's a very polemical book because I want people um, to go out and, and question 
whiteness more widely um, and talk about whiteness more widely. Yeah, and, and that kind of act of questioning or, or act of discussing is about, um, I suppose, uh, overturning the idea that whiteness is kind of, is normal, is something that can be taken for granted, and um, that ideas of um, blackness uh, or other forms um, of ethnic identity are somehow exotic or strange or need to be kind of, you know, studied as other or different uh, yeah. Or in some cases, uh, pathologized. And it's really interesting the kind of um, the attempt the book makes to sort of shine a light on whiteness, something that is, is taken for granted. Much has been done with studies um, of kind of masculinity or heterosexuality, you know, these kind of uh, powerful categories that are seen as taken for granted. In the conclusion, I actually say you could have taken uh, hegemonic masculinity. Um, and put that in the book instead of um, hegemonic whiteness, um, I, I, I could have uh, had a, an entirely different book, but talking about the same kind of um, inequalities and the same um, struggles over power and meaning and agency. Now, so, yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> what sort of, um, I guess, maybe the other thing you're trying to do in the book is um, within some... Um, sections of uh, critical theory, not just critical uh, race theory, but critical theory generally. Um, there has been a sort of an attempt to um, pull apart, destabilize, um, to, you know, maybe play with um, some of the grand traditions and ideas about universalism uh, or common human experiences um, that have come to us through Enlightenment thinkers. But in the book, you're really attached to and really kind of defend um, particular forms of Enlightenment ideas, most notably the work of Jürgen Habermas, who uh, is a German critical theorist who writes, you know, very much in the tradition um, of critical theory on the one hand, but also the Enlightenment on the other. And Habermas, in, in the book, you talk about how uh, you've developed a sort of longer-term um, project about Habermasian approaches to um, to understanding leisure and the influence of kind of Habermas on your, your work and thoughts. So I wonder if you could kind of um, unpack and expand um, the sort of Carl Spracklin approach to uh, Habermas and, and, and leisure. Well, Habermas's big idea um, is um, there are essentially kind of two rationalities in the world. Um, they kind of operate um, differently at different kind of um, time periods. Uh, but in terms of kind of modernity, we have what he calls um, communicative rationality, which is where um, people discuss things and they come up with ideas about, you know, how they how laws operate and um, how science is meant to work and how universities um, uh, develop. And then we have these this other form of rationality called instrumental rationality or instrumentality that. Um, is kind of imposing very narrow, um, um, narrow boundaries over um, what we are allowed to discuss and how we talk to each other. So, put simply, instrumentality is um, state bureaucracies. It's um, what Habermas calls um, juridification, uh, and also uh, global capitalism. You know, the the bottom line, so um, where everything is reduced to a kind of a profit or loss. Uh, and in leisure, leisure, I think, 
historically leisure is leisure experiences are something that that make us human that we all can carry these passions about the things that we we enjoy the things that we love we we really kind of um get huge satisfaction from um our leisure pursuits but there's a industries of um people out there trying to convert every leisure activity out there into something that can be uh, sold. So music shifts from being, um, in pre-modern times, a way of people get, you know, getting together around the fire, singing songs, becomes um, an, I, an iPod where you, you, know, you give all your money to Apple and Apple controls every kind of transaction that you make. And um, running around and being kind of um, playful becomes professional sport where instead of, instead of running up and down and kicking a ball, you're actually just sat in a stadium um, watching um, other people kick a ball around. So at every point you see historically this shift from the communicative to the instrumental, and that's how I'm using um, Habermas's work. In the stuff on um, the Enlightenment and Universalism, uh, I'm just an old-fashioned Marxist. <laughs> I mean, I just, I just think... Um, it, it's it's a diversion to kind of lose the truth. There is a truth, and it's our we wouldn't be academics if we weren't trying to come to a truth about something about the world. And I think there's lots of useful ideas in postmodernism and poststructuralism, um, and some of the kind of challenges that, that that have been made about about the power of science and the power of um, authorities and the power. Um, of authorial voices is absolutely valid, and uh, you know I'm all, be, all I'm all for those challenges. Um, but the, the fact that we think those challenges are valid suggests that we have some kind of meta meta um, ontology um, where we can still say this is good for the world and this is bad for the world. So for me, it's bad for the world that um, capitalism um, has got us, in, got us trapped in the way that we're trapped. And I think it's bad for the world um, that white people still have all their power and it's bad for the world um, that the gender order still exists. Uh, and it would be good for the world if those things were challenged and um, somehow kind of... Um, overturned or changed or um, evolved somewhere. So, so I think it's dangerous if, if you become completely post-structuralist about something like race, you end up um, saying, oh, yeah, well, race, it's, it's, it, there's nothing real here to worry about. There's nothing, um, there's no real power. White people, black people um, are kind of equally um, able um, to... Um, create a kind of space where they're free and and have that agency. And I'm not quite sure that that's always true, always, um, all the time. Um, I think white people do have more power and do have more agency because historically, um, you know, the white people have been in control. I mean, it, it's really interesting because that sort of ethical moment, I guess, is, is what... Um animates the, um, the case studies. But before you get into the case studies, you also um, try and probe both 
um, the question of sort of what is whiteness and then um, theories of whiteness more more kind of generally. And I suppose it's really difficult, isn't it, to talk about, um, on the one hand, kind of uh, whiteness and white people, but also, um, you know, to be aware of and, and to make the point that this is a kind of constructed, um, socially developed um, idea that has um, has a role in, in particular forms of exploitative uh, practice. Uh, I, oh, sorry. No, no, carry on. Uh, I guess the kind of the, the interesting uh, question that follows from that attempt to, to theorise these issues is, well, how does this play out in sort of uh, in leisure generally? And, and you've got examples from popular culture, music, sport, uh, sports media, everyday leisure, tourism, outdoor leisure, and I think it'd be interesting if we picked up on on a few of those. So, for example. Um, one of the chapters you, you get into um, popular culture um, as, a, as a kind of key site for understanding whiteness through things like Harry Potter, uh, Star Trek, Friends and the Western canon. And I wonder if you could um, say a little bit about that. Yeah, well, Harry Potter, um, well, you've only got to look at, at, at the films, have they? They kind of sell this... This, this vision of um, multiculturalism on the one hand, so they, they do have um, characters who aren't white, but, but the key characters, um, uh, Harry Potter, white, Hermione Granger, white, um, Ron Weasley, white, I see, I, I know them all. Uh, <laughs> and they, and the, they're not just white, they represent a, a kind of a, a mythologically white British public school um, culture. So, so Harry Potter sells this kind of this white Britishness, this kind of post-imperial white Britishness, uh, and, and makes it normal and, and and says it's not about um, elitism and it's not about exclusion. Oh, because we've we've got these characters. There's there's the um, the sisters, um, the Patel sisters, um, over there, and there's um, Harry Potter's um, girlfriend, um, who is um, Chinese, and you know that 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 for um, for Hollywood is their attempt at convincing people that they're diverse. But of course, Harry Potter isn't um, about diversity; it's it's actually quite elitist, and it's about elite schools, and it's. It's about the um, British public school. It's about the empire and Britishness, uh, and the whole story revolves around people uh, who who are um, blood of the right blood to be um, magicians. Uh, Friends, Friends is just incredibly white. This is New York um, uh, in the nineteen nineties and the twenty hundreds, uh, at a time when New York. Uh, He's incredibly diverse, um, and all the friends um, are white and black. Black um, African Americans uh, occasionally kind of appear, um, but um, even when African Americans appear, they kind of choose actors uh, who um, kind of carry that middle class bourgeois cultural capital and whenever there is a minority ethnic character who is um, African American uh, it's always someone 
who's scary. You know, it's the scary criminal. It's a person threatening um, Chandler um, in um, a, a dark alley. Um, the other two, um, oh, Star Trek. Let's talk Star Trek. Uh, I love Star Trek. Star Trek um, is absolutely fantastic, and yet they were the first um, television program um, to air an interracial kiss um, between Captain Kirk and Uhura. Um, but you, you also point out the way that um, the power structures in Star Trek until, um, is it uh, Deep Space Nine? Um, there isn't the kind of, I guess, a senior black officer yeah. um, you know, within the kind of the world of Star Trek until yeah. uh, it, it gets its third televisual iteration. Yeah. And so, so they do push the boundaries, but they push the boundaries, you know, 20, 30 years too late. I mean, one of the things that it's interesting you mentioned there is the intersection of questions of, of class and ethnicity. And, I mean, when I kind of encounter Harry Potter, it's interesting that kind of the question of whiteness um, or, or racialized discourses isn't the thing I think of as a predominantly uh, sort of middle-class white British academic. What strikes me about it is, is the question of class and... Um, the kind of British obsession with class and how this has played out in Potter, but it was really sort of refreshing to see uh, Potter framed um, in terms of the kind of eth- ethnic and racialized discourses of things like you know the particular blood, um, you know the the racial lineage, etc., etc. Yeah, I mean all 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 the talking Harry Potter about mudbloods and about muggles, it's all. It's all kind of legitimising these notions that there is such a thing as race and there is such a thing where some person's blood um, means that they're somehow better than um, someone else. I mean, at the same time as um, the question of sort of representation occurs in terms of uh, maybe the sort of inequalities of presenting New York as a space uh, dominated by... Uh, white middle class um, individuals. There's also a question of kind of um, how one teaches uh, particular forms of of consumption and, and the idea of the white consumer in that chapter. Yeah, uh, the whole kind of idea of um, the central perk, um, where um, if if you're bourgeois, young, urban, white, uh, you Kind of perform this 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 role where you hang around with your friends instead of your family, and um, you don't seem to work because you're kind of rich enough um, to um, not worry about um, paying the bills. Uh, and even the act of drinking coffee is a kind of a, a, a post-colonial um, trick. You know, coffee's history is kind of um, lived with you know, the story of um, empire and the story of slavery and the story of um, global capitalism. And it's still, coffee is still this kind of incredibly unequal um, product. But it's kind of, it, it's normalised as part of everyday popular culture uh, without a moment's spot to the kind of, the you know, the, the inequalities and the his- historical um, inequalities that have kind of led to that moment when um, Rachel's sitting down with a with a latte next to um, Monica. 
And, and yeah, you, you do this um, this same kind of or similar analysis in the chapter on on whiteness and everyday leisure, where you think about you know the activities of drinking, shopping, eating, uh, constructing categories of of what we might refer to as ethnic food carry these same sorts um, of problematic issues. Yeah, I, I, I really, it really, ethnic food really troubles um, me, and I say that ironically because my um, my favourite food is actually um, um, a curry. But um, I think the whole notion of going for a curry and going for ethnic food. Uh, is just uh, ridiculous when when you kind of look look at it closely because who, who are these ethnic people with their ethnic food? It's it's minority ethnic people, it's marginalised groups, it's um, migrants, um, and it's the other. You know, so so we instantly kind of exoticise uh, an entire community uh, on the basis that we quite like their food and. You know, we then turn um, that community into uh, a service industry. We then kind of uh, engage with people from that community um, whilst they're serving us the food, uh, and then we kind of disappear and go to our um, nice white houses in our kind of nice white um, towns. So, so I I find the idea of um, ethnic food um, deeply problematic because. I've never seen anywhere. I, I, I've never been anywhere uh, where I've seen. Um, actually, I, I was going to say I've never been anywhere where I've seen um, ethnic British food portrayed as ethnic food. But I think if you go to um, um, Spain, you'll probably find some of those bars on the kind of Spanish resorts, um, where they probably have um, British fish and chip shops. So I better stop talking there before I contradict myself. But but. but it's interesting that kind of the role of something like say um, curry, which um, is you know in the British popular imagination um, framed as being Indian uh, or subcontinental Indian food, but actually it's got this complicated history um, of dialogues between Britain, um, its empire, the subcontinent, and contemporary Britishness, um, particularly the um, discussion of um, who is involved in its making, um, you know, the particular um, varieties of curry that we associate with India, but actually, uh, uh, you know, importantly, uh, kind of from places like Bangladesh, these kinds of questions are missing from um, that kind of exoticization in the popular imagination. Yeah, and, 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 and what's also missing is um, the fact that um, people from the British Asian community um, just eat a whole variety of food the same as everyone else. Um, and most of the kind of young people, if, if, if you go around an area that's kind of predominantly uh, British Asian, you'll find most of the kind of young people on the street are just eating um, fried chicken like every other working class young person in Great Britain. And yet there's a kind of, there's an assumption that, you know, everybody there must be eating curry because curry is the thing that they've given us that, that, that we, the, the white people in charge, are comfortable with. So this um, question of, uh, yeah, I guess what the sort of critical uh, moments might be in the study of things like everyday life, 
Um, you do try and, um, I guess, kind of salvage um, some of these uh, critical moments with um, an appeal to these kind of ideas about communicative uh, rationality. And, and one of the things that stood out in the book uh, was the discussion of uh, online gaming, particularly uh, a game you, you focus on called World of Warcraft, um, and how there might be a kind of uh, a utopian or communicative moment here, but actually how it how it gets thwarted. Yeah, I think I think with all um, with all activities, um, there's always the chance for for uh, engagement, dialogue, discourse, and the construction of um, more inclusive um, identities and communities, um, and kind of counter hegemonic, uh, resistive uh, communities. Uh, and I think the internet and gaming is possibly a place where that could happen. So, you know, there might be there might be on World of Warcraft opportunities for people um, to mess around with uh, um, gender, um, to mess around, to, to develop um, connections with people from around the world, from lots of different communities, and have like a, a intercultural dialogue. But of course. In reality, what often happens with these sorts of games is they just reproduce um, the existing kind of racial hierarchies and gender orders. Now, the, the other thing, aside from uh, computer gaming, where uh, these kind of questions of communicative rationality and utopia come in, in a, in a quite sort of, I guess, sort of depressing way because they're, they're so marginal, are the two chapters about sport, one of which covers uh, questions about um, sports participation, particularly how some uh, sports are kind of coded uh, as white sports and some sports are coded as black sports, but then also the overall political economy of sports media and sports um, politics. Yeah, I, I, I give them two chapters because for most people... Uh, today when you talk about leisure um, most people think of um, sports instantly as, as one form of leisure that's kind of so globalised um, so universal um, across so many different kind of nations and cultures uh, so, so I felt it needed kind of two chapters to kind of um, tackle sport and there is, there is a strong relationship I think between you know the idea of sports, sports as participation um, activities, whether um, you're playing or you're a fan, or, and you know the sports media complex um, each kind of feeds off each other. But but I think in both in both places, uh, because the history of sports, the history of modern sports is that sports were construct most modern sports were constructed. Uh, at the end of the 19th century, there are thereabouts uh, by um, Western imperialists, people who were making uh, explicit uh, their commitment to uh, preserving empire, promoting what the white race, uh, promoting um, the community of um, European nations, uh, and promoting kind of elitism and promoting masculinity. Because our modern sports come from there, they still carry this this doctrine, I guess this 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 doctrine of uh, hegemonic whiteness. They are there merely to kind of um, keep 
keep the working classes and keep the other in check and nurture the well-being of uh, the elites. Now, since then, of course, um, sport has been commodified, commercialised, professionalised, um, and turned into a global industry um, where actually the bottom line counts more than the preservation of, of um, wide power. Um, so profit is kind of the main driver of professional sports and the sports media complex now. But there are these echoes of this um, elitist um, discourse that survive today. So the, the notion that some sports are for white people and some sports are for others, the notion that um, black people are somehow um, a race that is kind of physically superior, um, so it, it means they can do certain sports, which of course is a nonsense, because there's no kind of um, scientific evidence for any of that. And the idea that sport is a way of um, perpetuating nationalism, this kind of still, um, even even with the Olympics in 2012, when uh, Mo Farah um, was an emblem, supposedly, of um, British um, multiculturalism, it was still um, bracketed in this um, imperialist idea of Britain, you know, the Queen parachuting out of the plane, uh, we're still living in um, a, a, a nation state that you know believes in the power of the monarchy and this kind of intrinsic um, right to rule. So you know we are not a democratic nation. We're not a multicultural nation. We're still um, subjects of the queen and subject to um, her arbitrary um, rule. The, the, the final uh, two things that. I'd like to flag up um, and maybe have a chat about uh, just as we come to the end of, of the discussion are um, the idea of intersectionality, which has become really important for um, contemporary feminist discourse, which I think ran uh, sort of throughout the book, although it becomes really important uh, for one of the later chapters on, on everyday life, as you kind of discuss the way intersections of class, gender, um, race uh, crossover. And then also your your presence in the book as well, which unusually for um, a book um, that you know is kind of uh, theoretically inclined with empirical case studies, there are moments in the book where you yourself appear as you know a reader, um, as a consumer of music, um, as someone who you know goes walking around uh, the part of the UK in which you live. Yeah, uh, I made a deliberate choice. Um, to impose my kind of um, authorial voice throughout the um, work, even kind of reflecting on <laughs> on my own ideas at, at, at times, and yeah, it, it's not a it's not a normal academic book, and I think um, some some reviews have kind of um, critiqued it for having too much of, of that um, first person reflective um, stuff that for some people might just be self-indulgent um, nonsense. But but I think politically and ethically, it's a kind of a lie to, to um, withdraw yourself from your own ideas and your own research. And, lo and lots of work that I read actually um, 
aesthetically, it's, it's actually not, it's not written very well because people are trying to avoid saying, oh, yeah, I've written this because I'm a football fan and I enjoy writing about football. So I, so I think it's kind of important that, that, particularly in leisure studies, where we are writing about um, the things that might seem a bit kind of trivial or frivolous, I think it's important that, that we that we are kind of open to our own um, our own int- our own position, our own kind of interest in in uh, the field. I also think it, it it does come from that from a kind of a feminist epistemology mm, yeah, uh, from, from, he, from here at kind of Leeds Metropolitan. You know, we've got a long tradition of um, leisure scholars writing out of that um, feminist epistemology and I just want to kind of keep on uh, being part of that um, part of that endeavour you know as as a man as a white man as a middle class white man um, I want to kind of just keep 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 coming back to, to that fact and that problem it's not going to suddenly make me into something else but as you know, it, it shows the reader. I think uh, that you know, I do take these things home with me, and it's not just you know writing a book, writing a book, putting it on the um, shelf, and then um, going home and replicating um, the problems that I've just critiqued. Yeah, and, and that comes up um, quite obviously in, in your discussion of, of things like folk music and particular forms of metal, um, and some of the um, brilliantly named bands. Uh, that you mentioned in the chapter on music. Um, but I, I think that might be a, a kind of a, a moment to to ask you what sort of future projects are there, both within, I guess, that kind of critical tradition, but also as part of the Leisure Studies um, series. Um, well, I'm writing a book at the moment about digital leisure, um, trying to kind of um, trying to map that um, Habermasian public sphere onto the internet, which Habermas himself um, famously has kind of um, dismissed. I mean, he's not a big fan of the internet. Uh, And I'm trying to kind of just use this this tension between agency and um, power um, to explore beyond beyond the things that that I wrote in Whiteness and Leisure. So it's more kind of of the, the sections in there that are about the net, it's kind of um, it's it's a full thing. So there'll be a chapter on there'll be a chapter on um, commodified leisure, a chapter on um, downloading, a chapter on um, pornography. Um, so that's kind of um, my main um, work at the moment. In terms of uh, music, I'm writing a I'm writing, doing a piece of research on um, folk metal. Folk metal and masculinity and nationalism. So, trying to kind of um, unpick um, the the myths and the narratives at work in this kind of folk metal genre, which has kind of um, died a, a death. It was incredibly popular about three years ago. Now, um, most bands are either disowning the genre or um, disappearing from the scene altogether. But I'm still writing about them. Uh, I'm also um, I've got about a dozen other projects on the go, um, all at various stages of um, planning. Uh, I'm hoping to write something around um, heritage tourism and northernness. I've got a special issue of the Journal for Cultural Research coming out 
um, in 2016 or 17. So it's a long way away. I want to kind of um, return to this idea of northernness that I kind of used um, in quite a lot of my work and just really have a go at kind of critiquing that and developing a, a theoretical framework um, to use in future projects. Uh, and uh, I'm also writing about um, more stuff on Morris dancing, um, looking at um, looking at um, pagans and radical feminists and other kind of alternative types and countercultural types, and how they use Morris dancing as a as a kind of a a, a space for kind of um, resisting the mainstream. Great. I mean, we'll have to get you back on the. Uh on the podcast as these uh, these projects develop and uh, and, and get published um, so yeah thanks very much for uh, taking the time to talk about whiteness and leisure with us yeah thanks a lot thanks for listening to new books in critical theory I've been your host David O'Brien from City University London on this episode we spoke to Professor Carl Spracklin from Leeds Metropolitan University in the UK about his new book whiteness and leisure which was published by Pargrave in 2013